As you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6 once again, picking up where we left off this morning. It's found on page 975 of the Black Pew Bible. 975, Galatians 6, starting at verse 6. Paul explains, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a well-known quote numerous people attributed to. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. Well-known quotation that happens to be a helpful distillation of biblical truth. At one level, this quote and these verses and the principle we see here are, I think, deeply encouraging. It's, it's a sign that indeed, by persistence, many of our goals can be met as it goes. Rome was not built in a day. You row one row at a time. You take one step at a time. There is a, a certain plodding in life that is often blessed. It's the principle mentioned here of sowing and reaping. But on another level, it highlights the weight of what we may be tempted to think of as, you know, thoughts that don't matter or words that don't matter or or little sins that are harmless. Now, the principle is interesting in this way. And as we come to this text and this principle here, in my first point, I'll try to make clear exactly what the principle is and why Paul highlights it as he does in verse 7. Start with the principle, then we'll move to hopefully clearly see Paul's application of the principle in three different areas. The principle, its application, its problem that Paul addresses, and its solution that Paul gives us. The principle, its application, its problem, its solution, so that we might grow indeed into the oaks of righteousness, which the Lord intends us to be. The principle is stated there most clearly in verse 7. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I I wish I could grab every middle schooler, high schooler, child in our church and grab them by the ears and speak this truth onto their eyelids. 
upon their hearts so they might never forget it. They might live their lives in light of such a principle as Paul puts us before, before us here. It's an obvious principle in the natural world, something everyone in the ancient world would have known, their agrarian society. If you want barley, you don't plant wheat. If you want olives, you don't plant grapes. If you want pomegranates, you don't plant or sow persimmons. It's science, we might say. It's part of the observable universe. You don't have to have a heap and ton of faith to believe this principle. Or even an advanced degree of any sort. No, I, indeed, I, I have planted Bermuda grass seed in my front yard. And I hope to see Bermuda grass spring next summer when the grasses become undormant. And yet, Paul seems pretty fired up about it here in verse 7. He starts with the exhortation, the command, do not be deceived. And then he roots this principle in the reality God is not mocked. Perhaps an obvious principle, but Paul wants to push it to a, a fascinating place. He roots it not in the obvious, obvious observable universe, not in common sense, but instead, I would argue here, in the very nature of God. God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. The things go together, we see. It's a fascinating thing to say. Paul indeed seems to pin the reliability of sowing and reaping to the principle of the Lord Himself. And if you slow down to think about this connection, I, I think it's deeply insightful on a number of levels. The sowing and reaping principle, you might say, is really one of predictability, an assumption of the entire scientific endeavor. Of course, what makes something scientific is that you can run the test and run it again, and if you have the same procedure and the same circumstances, you have the same results. If you sow the thing, you get the thing. Now, why can science assume the predictability of the universe? Or the question might come from the philosophers to the scientists. Upon what principle can you who are doing science in the physical world expect predictable results? Why do our scientists assume that when they measure the time it takes from, for, for light to get from the sun to the earth, something like eight minutes, right? How, how do they know that every time they measure it, it'll be about eight minutes or so? Not, not, not the fact that, oh, well, of course, we run the test to get the same results over and over again. It, the proof is in the pudding. No, that, that, that doesn't answer the question of why. It only answers the question of, you, of what you're observing, that it happens the same way every time. But why is it? On what basis can we expect it? Why is the universe the way it is, in other words? And I would argue the scientists have no answer for their presumption nor can they account for the why of the predictability of the universe. They can only observe it. Uh, a materialistic or scientific worldview, uh, I would argue, of course, leaves some of the largest questions, largest holes to be answered, like the question of why there is something rather than nothing. That's the most basic question, why existence? Or this question, why might I always expect B to follow A? Why might I always expect a causation? Why might I expect predictability? This is the point Vishal Mangawadi makes, in his, his well, uh, makes so well in his book. The book's entitled, The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. 
Mangalwadi's story is well worth your time. His conversion, his insights, being one who grew up in India, converted to Christianity, and sees clearly the, the stark difference between a Western civilization and an Eastern civilization. <clears throat> but Mangalwadi makes the point that it is not accidental that the scientific revolution happened in the West and not in the East. Science itself, he says, depends upon an ordered, predictable universe. If you like, as we've said a couple of Sunday evenings ago, the great mythologies of the ancient world, including the ancient Hindu mythologies, teach that all that exists comes from gods and their whims and their smacking things together. Indeed, they, they would have no ultimate ontological basis by which to expect the predictability of the universe. In contrast, to a civilization built upon Christian assumptions of a God who is immutable, a God who never changes. This is, of course, where Paul roots this principle, universal principle of sowing and reaping, the predictability of the universe in the character of God. He will not be mocked. He does not change. It's the principle It's one that's universal, one that's useful, one all of us must have, not only, of course, in the physical universe, but something that applies spiritually as well. We've seen the principle. Now we need to take note of Paul's application of it. The great Anglican preacher and commentator John Stott points out, helpfully, there's, there's three areas in which Paul makes the application of this sowing and reaping principle. The first area is the gospel ministry. The second area is personal holiness. And the third area is kind of general well-doing. And the the gospel ministry application is here in verse 6. Look there with me. It says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul is speaking to the members of the church. Paul is encouraging them to give all good things, or we might, I think, easily conclude... Uh, those things that are uh, needful for the financial sustainability of the teaching ministry. Paul is calling them to give of their money to the teacher or the preacher or the ministerial team. And if if you doubt the logical connection between verse 6, as Paul's speaking of the teacher and the one who gives in verse 7, the principle, Paul uses the exact same logic in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Perhaps these words are even more familiar to us. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's our principle, sowing reaping principle, connected to verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Our giving, connected to, of course, this principle of sowing and reaping. And the Lord Jesus in Luke 10.7, and teaches very similar things. Sending out his disciples in their preaching travels, he says, the worker deserves his wages. Paul, 1 Timothy 5.18, gives the memorable uh, picture. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. This principle of gospel ministry, take care of your teachers, congregation, the sowing you put into your pastoral team, your teachers, you're taking care of them, connected to the principle here in verse 7, promises that you too will bear fruit. The church as a whole will bear fruit. Spiritual fruit, we might conclude, as they invest in the church. 
a congregation that invests in the church, that supplies and supports their teachers and preachers and pastors and ministerial team, ought to expect capable ministry. Indeed, the Lord honors a generous congregation, and I think He has honored our congregation. 270 years of generous people, a faithful church still here today. Uh, I would argue, observably, not, not always, but ordinarily, children that raise, are raised up to follow in the way of their parents, generations one after the other. Indeed, the Lord gives fruit to the generous congregation. So that the one who is taught the Word can't just be a consumer, verse 6, he is expected to sow and reap and be a part of the thing. So he makes his application to the gospel ministry, number one. And number two, Paul applies this principle to personal holiness. Personal holiness. It's there in verse 8. Remember, Paul is picking up his discussion of spiritual fruit and fleshly works. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit well, from the Spirit reap eternal life. As we've said last Sunday evening, if we want to grow spiritually, it's belonging, warring, and walking, belonging to Christ, warring against the flesh, walking by the Spirit. We might add a fourth point here, sowing to the Spirit. Not the kind of needle and thread sowing, of course, but a kind of casting of seeds into fields. It seems that Paul has two fields in mind. One field are flesh, that is the natural, default, sinful, fleshly, selfish, sinful way of life. And the other are born again, the spiritual way, Godward, selfless, spiritual way of life. Two fields in our lives, and whether or not not we like it, we're always sowing into one or the other. And we need to pay attention. Well, what does it mean by one who who sows to the flesh? What might be an example of that? Well, sowing to the flesh is you investing your resources, your time, energy, and money to those things which reap corruption, those things that are worthless and passing away. You sow your resources into corrupt things, you can expect corrupt results. Sow all kinds of your time into your entertainment all kinds of effort, time, and energy into your football watching, or your video games, or your movie consumption, or your novel consumption. And sure, you might have some, a few insights into the human condition come out of that. But if you invest your time in entertainment, what do you gain from it? Probably a hunger for more entertainment. Perhaps uh, you, as you invest our time and our eyeballs and our effort into the, the products of Hollywood, a corrupt Hollywood, of course, we would reap corruption. Or sow your time into scrolling social media, consuming images and the latest news on our favorite celebrities, or keeping up with all of our healthy, wealthy, and wise friends and following their lives, or the innumerable pornographic uh, advertisements that come to us over our social media. And, And what will you reap? Well, not be surprised when you reap deep discontentment, covetousness, jealousy, burning lust. It's a universal principle. You sow your thoughts, time, and money into these things, you will receive these things. Indeed, how are you sowing into the flesh? It's not a question of if you are, but how are you? 
Because there is the contrary kind of sowing that Paul calls us to, not a sowing to the flesh and from the flesh reaping corruption, but one who sows to the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to sow into Spirit? To sow our time, energy, and resources into the spiritual field? It's not difficult application. It's to rise up early, as the farmer does, go to work and plant the seeds and make the investments into your personal walk with Christ, reading your Bible and praying and worshiping morning by morning, taking your family time, which could be in all kinds of other things invested in, and investing it in the, the very purpose for which your family exists, the worship of God. Sow your time, energy, and money into your local church. Indeed, any good community takes deep commitment. If you want a lot out of your church, you put a lot into your church. I would argue it's one of the best, best investments you can make. You see, God promises here to bless the one who seeks after godliness. Verse 8, take this to the blank. Proclaim it to him in the morning when you rise to read your Bibles and pray. The one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ask, seek, knock, Jesus says, and the door will be opened to you. You sow your life for the kingdom, pursuing God, and you will know God and reap his kingdom. Jesus says where your treasure is, where your investment is, we might say, there your heart will be also. Sow your treasure into the things of God and receive a harvest of godliness. Don't be surprised by it. Indeed, Seeing Paul is applying this principle to uh, gospel ministry in the church, to our own personal holiness, and thirdly here, to uh, I might call a, a kind of general well-doing, as he says in verses 9 and 10. Look there with me. Verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Indeed, the Bible throughout calls us to a kind of general well-doing. We might say a, a loving of our neighbors. Ezekiel 29 most memorably reminds us, or Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, Jeremiah 29 tells the exiles to, to build houses and live in them, to seek the welfare of the city in which he's placed, to build homes, to give in marriage, even perhaps serving the empire as bureaucrats, as Joseph did in Egypt, or Daniel in Babylon. Indeed, our Lord Jesus calls us to be salt and light in the place he's put us, to do a, a general well-doing, a, a general good. Our own church offers all kinds of ministries like this, whether it's our ESL ministry or our partnership with Urban Hope or the Living Vine or Covenant Care or their March for Life. We indeed want to do a general good. We are out in the civil square seeking to bless in general, seeking to do good and bless our nation. But we need to see not only the, the call to this general good ministry that Paul gives us here, but also the, the priority. There's an application of this principle to the general good ministry, but also the priority of that ministry, which is especially, in verse 10, to those of the household of faith. There are other households out there. And our church family comes first. This is the implication for our church. It's, uh, it's good to sow general seeds into the community around us, and yet never to neglect the people in our own pews. Indeed, it's, it's important to have a good reputation. It's important to uh, seek the general welfare, to do general kinds of mercy ministry, 
always to our own house first. These are the Paul's application of the sowing and reaping principle. Gospel ministry, personal holiness, general well-doing. But Paul also knows uh, your, your cynicism and my own. And he addresses the problem with this principle. It's our third point, the problem with this principle. And the problem with the principle is that there, there's often a number of months between our sowing and our reaping. There, there's a lag time. I am hopeful but also afraid that uh, the, the Bermuda grass I sowed will never produce. I, you know, I followed the directions, I watered it, I had my spreader on the right setting, I think, and I did it, and it's, it's already been a couple months, and uh, there's not even any sprigs yet. So some signs of growth might be helpful, but this is the way spiritual life so often is. Paul knows there's a lag time. He knows it's possible to be deceived. That's one of the problems. He addresses it in verse 7. Deceived into thinking the harvest will never come. That's why he tells you, verse 7, do not be deceived. The harvest is going to come. It's easy to think that you can sin and sin and sin, and the consequences will never find you out. To think that uh, your own personal jealousies are, are just inside your own heart and mind. To think that your, your porn problem, you know, has no other victims. To think that you can get away with drinking a little too much every so often. To think that your pet sins won't grow into major problems affecting not only your life, but the life of your family. See, this is the problem. We are easily deceived. We buy the serpent's lies that our pet sins are no big deal. That we can have little puppies that will not grow into wolves. Paul calls us to not be deceived, nor to the second problem, which is to be easily discouraged. We're easily deceived and easily discouraged. That's why Paul says in verse 9, let us not grow weary. It's all too easy in the Christian life of our sowing seed into the Spirit and awaiting the, the harvest of the Spirit to indeed grow weary. It can be weary and discouraging. You can go months seeking the Lord's face, months and years seeking to defeat a particular sin struggle. The whole thing can get very discouraging. And your marriage isn't fixed after a couple of marriage counseling sessions. Your addiction isn't easily managed after meeting with your pastor. We might say 270 years of the ministry of this church, and what do we have to show for it? Now, I think there's a great argument there, but it's a spiritual argument to be made. You see, the problem is the lag time, being easily deceived and easily discouraged. And these problems with the principle of sowing and reaping are only ever confronted by our last point, the solution. We have the principle, its application, its problem, its solution. And the solution is no surprise. The solution is trusting God. It's having faith and looking to Him. That's what Paul says in verse 7. Look there again. He says, do not be deceived. The solution to our deception, God is not mocked. See, it's that assertion, that theological commitment that is the solution to our deception and our discouragement. The godness of God and his unchangedness, his immutability. See, if you believed in the godness of God, you would not doubt this principle, that you will reap what you sow. If you believed in the godness of God, you would not be mocking God by thinking that you could somehow get away with your pet sins. 
piddling away your minutes, hours, and days for your own glory, your own pleasure, your own way. Oh, Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, the prophet tells us, you sow the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. So God will not be mocked. He knows all and is all-powerful. He made all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, even as we said this evening. He has made it. He's responsible for it. And being responsible for his creation, he is also the judge of it. And he must be good, and he cannot be a good judge if he allows the wicked to go unpunished. No, all evil. He is holy and good. He must punish the wicked. He must deal justly. And it is because God will not be mocked that the ultimate solution for all of history is given, the very center of the Christian religion. See, if God had been gracious without a cross, if he had indeed granted mercy and grace for, her, for whoever, without a substitutionary atonement of his son on the cross, then God could have been mocked. He could have been an unjust judge for, for clearing the guilty. But indeed, as Paul explains, Romans 3, he is both just, he's a good judge, and he's the justifier who can give grace by faith in Christ because of the cross. The ultimate solution for all of humanity, for all the history of the world, is found in this cross that God is able to uphold his own nature, even able to uphold this principle, you reap what you sow. See, there is not a single sin in all the universe that goes unpunished. There is not a single sin, not a single seed sown into the flesh that will not be paid for. Either that sin was counted to Christ on the cross or it will be counted to you at the judgment. The scales must be balanced. He is a just judge. He is holy, holy, holy. All things must be dealt with. And either your sin was paid for by the blood of Christ, or you will pay for it for all eternity. But as Paul says here, God will not be mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There is an invitation here, a gospel invitation, to sow into the Spirit and reap eternal life. You are sowing no matter what you're doing if you're living. Sow to the Spirit. This is, this is the principle. Paul has shown us his application. He's, he's spoken to the problem, and he's shown us the solution. Trust him. There is nowhere else to hide. There's nowhere else to go. He backs us into the corner of reality that he exists and he's made a way for us by the blood of the cross. It's just Paul's logic here. It's the logic of life. It's what I hope my children and our young people never forget. What you sow, you shall reap, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the unchanging God, that you are the I am who I am, that your glory you will not give to another. And Father, we as your created beings, may we know ourselves in our right place. May we know, even as we learned this morning, that lest we think we are something, we are indeed nothing. May our only boast be in the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.